harness your strengths, develop a growth mindset, become more resilient and succeed. This is the Commit Podcast with Ireland's leading performance company, McNulty Performance. And on today's podcast, we speak to Sinead Kane, an incredible woman who has completed the seven marathons on seven continents in seven days challenge, as well as running in 12-hour and 24-hour races and holding the world record for distance run on a treadmill. Not bad for someone who took up sport only six years ago at the age of 30. And did I also mention she is blind? For Sinead, the tipping point for her was age 17, when she chose how she wanted to live her life on her terms. I think it was when my careers advisor teacher told me at 17 that I couldn't study law because it was a reading-based subject and my disability being my eyes. She didn't really think that I'd be able for it. And um, I suppose the unfortunate sad thing about that is that 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 career advisor teacher truly believed that it wasn't anything about reverse psychology oh I'll tell her this and then she'll go off and she'll try and do it um and so for me the pendulum really swung then to become proactive um I do a lot of motivational speaking and um everybody say oh you're very confident with your with speaking and doesn't seem to bother you and you stand up and you talk and you can talk to audiences small and large but I think even though people see a very confident person standing up there talking with ease like it has taken me a long time to get to that point like before 17 um and even maybe in my 20s um there was a lot of low confidence low self-esteem very isolated very introverted didn't really want to be around anybody was never involved in sport of any type until the age of 30 um so I was a very different person from then to what I am now and I think as we go on in life we um learn about ourselves and I think a lot of people invest in cars and they invest in houses and I think the greatest gift and selfish um investment that you can give is really self like investment in yourself that's what I see because um I I think that if you don't really know about yourself how can you expect others to fully know about you and I think it's not a thing of investing myself today and I'll do this oh course for six weeks and then I'll know about myself um I think it's a lifelong thing like education is a lifelong thing um every time I read a book I think I know about it at the beginning but then by the end of the book I realize okay I don't know about this subject at all I really need to do more learning about it so is it a case of that it has to be a conscious decision on the person that sometimes there has to be a trigger point or a trigger moment in somebody's life that they say do you know what I need to do something, I need to change or I need to be more proactive or positive about things in my life? Um, well, I yeah, I think uh, a lot of people have trigger moments in their life, like me when I was 17. But I also think it comes down to, I suppose, knowing the reason why you want to kind of uh, succeed at whatever you want to succeed at. And I, sometimes I think that, we don't fully know the reason why. So, for example, a person might say, I want to lose weight um, because I want to fit into the dress. But really, is it to fit into the dress? Or is it some deeper level issue deep down? So I think that, um, yeah, it can be trigger moments, but I think it also can be about just... um, 
finding yourself. It's not like as if at 17, I became positive and I became optimistic. And ever since then, I've never had a negative day because actually I more struggle with trying to be positive um, every day because being optimistic is difficult um, and especially when you have a lot of setbacks so um, I suppose up to that point of 17 the reason why I did start becoming a bit more proactive and a bit more optimistic in my life is because of the fact that um, I was extremely badly bullied in primary school and secondary school that had a very bad effect on me um, or oh, what I've actually found from life even to this day the biggest bully in my life, though, is myself because I persecute myself on um, nearly a daily basis. Um, I would say to myself, OK, that wasn't good enough and you should do that again. Or And people have commented to me, like even when I came back from the World Marathon Challenge, I had arranged like to go for a celebration meal with people who helped me try and achieve that goal. Um, And I suppose then I'm always too busy and then it never actually really came around to doing this celebration meal. And some people have commented to me, Sinead, you never really fully celebrate your achievements. You've one goal done and then you're on to your next goal. And I suppose that's a bit of a way I operate. People operate goal to goal whereas I operate like in my head at the moment now I've three goals what I've learned in the past is if you've if you don't have a second goal after the first goal if the first goal doesn't work out then you're kind of left with nothing type of thing like after the world marathon challenge four weeks after world marathon challenge I went to Finland and did a 24-hour race first fee our first um visually impaired person disability person to ever do that 24-hour race that was my first attempt at a 24-hour race came ninth female um and I suppose I was educating the organizers because they'd never had a person with a disability in it so I suppose I had that goal lined up in case the world marathon challenge didn't come about for me so that I wouldn't be dwelling too much on disappointment. Now, I'm not saying for people that the way to succeed is, oh, to have a series of goals all lined up, very, very big goals, because what works for me may not work for another person. But um, this is kind of what has worked for me. And I suppose in that then, I don't really take downtime. Um, maybe that's not great a thing, but that's the way I operate. I always feel I have to be busy. But what about balance? I suppose what strikes me as talking to you is going, you can be so goal-driven, but then at the same time, you need a bit of balance to that as well. Or like you said, is that just how you operate? That's where you're most comfortable when you're constantly striving to, to look to succeed in something. Yeah, well, I think that's where when you're trying to have balance, that's where you need to be productive with your time and kind of like, I don't go out every single Saturday night because you have to make the choice do you want to go out on Saturday night or do you want to do your training run on the Sunday morning so um, and then as well as that like obviously family is very important to me my sister and um, my niece they're very important to me so I like to try and make time to be seeing them each week um, because like no matter how many goals I do I do know that no matter what achievements you read out in a minute, when I go to my grave, like there, when the people who were there beside me at the last moments, 
there that's really what matters so it's really people in your life um and so that's why family is very big important to me that I don't jeopardize being so focused on goals that I jeopardize the value of people so I am conscious of that and I try and make each week time for my family just talk me through the the, some of the marathons some of the races that you've done some of the achievements so I did my first 10k in June 2012 when I was asked to do 10k for child vision didn't know what a 10k was I just said automatically yes because it was for charity blind children. And this age, you were thirty years of age. You, you n- you're never involved in sport. Yeah. You know, you were just decided, right? I'll do this ten k, whatever. For it is. eight weeks, yeah. So did eight weeks training, um, and found it difficult to actually find a guide runner because once I had said yes. Then I had to actually say, oh, well, actually, how am I going to do this? I actually need a guide runner. So I found it difficult to find a guide runner, found a guide runner, started my training. I was so new to running, didn't know nothing about running shoes, running clothes, running watches, pace, distance or anything. I had um, I did a, tw- a two mile run and after two miles, I thought I was at the 10K. I said to my friend, I said, oh, this is great now, I've finished. And she said, you're only at two miles, you have another 4.2 to go. Like, so, um, and then my feet got really badly blistered because my feet wasn't used to running outside. So how much were you training in those eight weeks? Like, I'd say about three days a week. And ha- talk people through. And about uh, an hour a day. Talk people through maybe how that works with a guide runner. Might yeah, so the guy at that time, the guide runner would have collected me. We would have went to a location that would have been safe. Um, it's not every location that you can go to. We went, went to a location that's safe and then did an hour run and then um, she would have brought me back again. And does the guide runner, like, you know... Do they, it's they, communication. So they'd be yeah. saying step, left, right, um, tree branch, duck head type thing. So, um, so I did that anyway for eight weeks and, oh yeah, when I got the blisters on my feet, she said to me, the guide runner said that, oh, I thought, okay, I'll just stop training. She said, no, you'll put on a load of blister plasters on your feet. You'll put on white swimming shoes and you'll get into the pool and you'll keep up your fitness. So to be adaptable. Mm -hmm. So I did that and that kept up my fitness and uh, did the mini marathon in June, 2012. Um, So you did this 10K, you obviously got through it and enjoyed it. Yeah. I raised 2,000 euros for child vision and did in 55 minutes. And was the running side of it that you just felt freer or you just felt the body and the mind? Well, in that run, like, I wasn't really thinking about body and mind (laughs) and all this. I was just like, I just want to finish this and kind of be, like do it for child vision so that's all I kept thinking about even the days when I didn't want to go out running um I just kept thinking about child vision so then when I finished it and saw that I actually did it in 55 minutes it actually built my confidence so then and that's um something that I'd like to convey to the listeners that sport has a lot of qualities that and skills that you can learn and that can transfer over to other areas of your life like your say your professional life your family life etc um so then that built my confidence and then I couldn't find a guide runner then for a year so I was out of running for a year then started back at it in um early 2014 then in October 2014 did my first marathon Dublin marathon um must be a great experience because you know there's so many people and there's such an atmosphere and a buzz is it uh well in that marathon I kind of 
left go the running tether with my guide runner and ran off in my guide runner at 25 miles because I was panicking about the pace and saying to myself okay I need I want to do this under four hours we're not going to do it under four hours if the pace doesn't kind of speed up so I ran off in the guide runner and then um came in in 401 and like that was quite a nerve-wracking thing for me to do because I couldn't see really where I was going and um I just asked another person to assist me to the end then at the end of that race the guide runner who I um, run coach John O'Regan he's an ultra international runner he's um oh on the he's the team manager as well for the Irish ultra um team so he kind of said to me oh I actually believe you're um dis- you're you're better off doing ultras so I, I, this was at the end of my first marathon at the finish line and I said I don't even know what an ultra is mm. what is an ultra and he said any distance beyond a marathon so I said okay well that's all great you suggesting that to me but who's going to run it with me and then uh, I, I kind of said and I didn't really know John that well at this time and I said put your money where you are put your money where your mouth is and uh like you run with me because he had previously guided Mark Pollock oh, okay. um in 2004 at the North Pole Marathon so he said he would guide me he did the 50k with me in Donna D Kildare Forest um uh in the February 2015 he actually got blindfolded and got his friends to even though he had ran with Mark uh, previously, he got his friends, uh, he was treating me different to Mark, he got his friends to blindfold him, guide him around the park before we actually did the 50k race, um, just to try and put himself into my shoes. And he kind of realised that um, the world becomes very, very different. Things that you would take for granted where your mind automatically tells you, lift your foot um he was saying like even the tree roots coming through the ground he never really took any notice of them running before it's just he just lifted the foot whereas being visioning when the blindfold was on he automatically knew the difference and he knew without say people telling him oh you're kind of going up an incline at the moment because of just the the difference in the level like so yeah, so that was liberating for him, and um, then I got well, wanted to go back to where it all began, the women's mini marathon. Tried to get John to the women's mini marathon. Was told that John couldn't run in that race. Um, being a male, I uh, got policy changed there that it just didn't just affect me, but other people with disabilities. Because after that, after getting the policy changed, I had a person with cystic fibrosis email me saying, thanks very much. I wanted my dad to push me in a wheelchair last year, but he couldn't get into the race. But now because they've changed the policy to allow male assistance. So that word is important, assistance, as opposed to guide runners. Um she's allowed to have her dad push her in the wheelchair so um I suppose and that's what I try and do I try and not do just stuff for myself I try and I become more passionate about it if I know if it's going to affect other people as well so then uh that was uh, uh the February 2015 and then in the June 2015 the movement's Martin, and then Around that time, then John said to me, what would you think about doing a 12-hour race? And then I kind of said, 
is there such a thing? I didn't even know there was such a thing. And then um, he said, yeah, yeah. And then I said, he said, it's on next month in Belfast. So I thought to myself, okay, like, I'll just say yes and pretend I'm going to do this race. So Don was all on for me doing the race. And he said, look, just to let you know, I think you can beat the track record up there. And I just thought to myself, okay, what is it? What's he on about? Like, I... I don't think I'll beat the track record, but lo and behold, his run coaching advice was right. I went up there, I came second female, beat the track record, did 109 kilometres, 109.97 or something. Track record was 105. The girl who came first, Amy Masner, she did, was I think that year 112. Following year, I did the race again, came second female again, the following year to a different girl. But that year, I up my, did a PB. That year, I did 112 kilometres. Um, so that was in 2016. And tell me this actually in terms of, it was interesting you said there that John said to you after that marathon, I think you'd be better going for the ultra marathons. Mm-hmm. Was, was there something he saw in your style and your, what, what made him think that you... I think that with a visual impairment, um, there's less chance of risk if you if you're going fast type of thing. Like if, say now, if I'm going extremely fast and trying to get down my marathon time to blow three hours or something Mm. like that, one, you have hassle of finding guides who are that able. Mm. And normally people then, if they are doing below three hours, they want to be competitive Mm. as opposed to guiding somebody. Because running can be very selfish sport. Mm. Like, um... And yeah, so that's the problem. Second problem then is like the speed that you're going at, the injury is much higher. Um, And then I think just my physiology, Mm. he just sees that I'm kind of better at that distance. And do you enjoy (laughs) I know you do. Uh, You have to at this stage enjoy um, Sometimes like I don't really enjoy the training, but I like the feeling that I get afterwards Mm. type of thing. And for me... um, I like to see myself as a competitor, not just the poor blind girl running around. Like, you hear me talking here now, and I'm quite polite and everything like that. But, like, unfortunately for the guide runners, when I'm in a race and when I'm extremely focused, like, I am very hard on them. Um, And, like, I've sacked John a few times, and then John would laugh back, and he'd say, oh, well, that's fine, because I don't want the job anyway. So, um, was that competitiveness always in you? Um, no, I don't think it was because I'm not being involved in sport, but it was only when, but I mean, even professionally, personally, in professionally, yeah, kind of. Um, but in the running, I suppose it really only came out when I did that 12 hour race Mm. and when I came second female and when there was a lot of people maybe at that race thinking, Osher, look at the poor blind girl running around. But then yet I came second and I realised then I'm actually good at this like so And you did the seven marathons in seven continents. In six days, <laughs> nine hours. Just tell people hours. about this cause like okay, if you're listening to this, you know, the idea of doing a marathon for a lot of people, then you moved on to, you know, twelve hour races, you know, hundred K plus that wasn't enough for you. You were doing seven marathons, seven continents, six days. Tell us about that. Yeah, so um, <clears throat> like a lot of people 
hear about that achievement but what they don't hear about is the days when I was out running on the track in the lashing rain or the days at home when I'd get a rejection letter or for sponsorship or rejection phone call um they don't see the amount of hours that went into trying to get sponsorship myself and John really worked as a team we decided I did the volcano marathon in Chile in the Atacama desert the driest desert in the world um in november 2015 and it was after that's organized by richard donovan um it was after that race i said to john i said i'd like to do something more challenging that race now that race volcano martin was really challenging but this is just me i like to keep mm. putting the bar up and up and up and then i said to john i said what could i do and he said have you ever heard of the word martin challenge and I said, no. And he said, oh, it's actually organised by Richard Donovan, same guy who organised um, the Volcano Marathon. So we decided, I asked him what it was. And like you say there, seven marathons, seven continents in seven days. Um, so we decided in January 2016 to do it. We spent all of... 2016 trying to get um sponsorship because um it was quite costly to go for me and then combined with my guide runner coming along as well it was double the fee and um and yeah trying to get the sponsorship was very very difficult we had two companies come on board in the april 2016 breaks that happened they dropped us um because they said the markets is unstable then I suppose I was very down and out. It was only John who kept me going. He kept saying, bring it back to the reason why you're doing this, Sinead. You're, and I had to keep asking myself that, why am I doing it? Like, why do I want to do this? And the reason why I wanted to do it is, I want to change perception of people with disabilities to show that people with disabilities can achieve to not underestimate them to awareness I knew that by doing the challenge it would create awareness in the media get maybe a bit of a conversation going um, and hopefully has changed a bit of perception around people with disabilities in sport secondly to get the Guinness World Record for being the first blind person visually impaired person worldwide to do seven marathons seven continents seven days i'm also the first irish female to do the world marathon challenge seven marathons seven continents seven days so they're kind of some of the reasons and like we got rejected with the sponsorship and again another company came on board in the october they more or less said they were given the sponsorship then in december i um asked them what's happening with the sponsorship then they sent me an email and basically told me they weren't giving me sponsorship so like with four weeks to go I just I felt that the dream was over that it just wasn't happening and this is a lesson I'd like to convey to people out there you always need hope and if you can hang on to a bit of hope and I hung on to the hope and I kept working hard and then thankfully Alliance came on board if anybody wants car insurance or house insurance, <laughs> Aliens are your people. Uh, that's the brand ambassador piece done for Aliens. Like I suppose you see one person here doing a radio interview or doing this podcast interview, but like behind me, there's a team of people who help me um, with my mental performance, physical performance, etc. Like Louis Byrne, he's the physiotherapist for me. John does the run coaching, the guide running obviously Alliance helps me my family helped me so like it's not just one person um obviously I'm the person that people want to interview but I think around me there's you need you need a good team to make the dream work you have to have teamwork 
It's a couple of things as well that people should be aware of. Is all your incredible sporting achievements. You were the first legally blind solicitor. Mm, you know? 2009. Two PhDs. Yeah. Um, so, you know, you have a, a professional side there that's, you know, incredible achievement as well, as well as what you're doing in the sporting sense. How do you juggle it all? How do you get the time to do everything and, and do it so well? Um, well, I suppose when I was trying to do my law exams, my BCL law degree in UCC, and UCC is a fantastic university, um, a master's in law in UCC, back then my nutrition wasn't great. How I survived was basically um, I would study all night long and just live on um, coffee and popcorn. We don't recommend that. <laughs> we don't recommend that now. Like I've since grown and I've since realized that um, that like uh, the difference with the nutrition but you have to work hard and that's what I really really done in UCC because I had to be adaptable as well because you see the difference to me and another student is because of my disability my eyes my arm my hand gets sore from holding magnifying glasses my back gets sore from bent over my eyes get sore so I have to spread out my reading. So when other peers were doing all their reading and studying in the morning time and then they go to lectures and then they're off out that night, I had to spread out my reading all throughout the day so I couldn't go out as much as, say, my peers or whatever. And they're kind of the sacrifices you have to make. So for me to get where I am, I've made a lot of sacrifices. Like in my 20s, I have sacrificed boyfriends. I've sacrificed relationships um, to really get where I want to go. Like So, um, yeah, it's great having these, but you have to make sacrifices. Can I ask you, just maybe just take people back then about your blindness. You mm-hmm. might just tell us. So I have aniridia coloboma and astigmas mm-hmm. glaucoma. So aniridia, you take in too much light. A lot of people think about blindness as in darkness. A lot of my problem is too much light. So so the aniridia coloboma is a part missing of the eye. So I don't have the iris part of the eye. The iris is the coloured part of the eye. So if you take off the coloured part of a person's eye, all your eye is black. And then you take light through the whole eye. Um, and that's kind of my problem. It's you, you only take light through your centre, mm-hmm. the pupil. So like I'm suffering a lot like with light when I look at lights look up at the light at the ceiling or anything there's all rays coming from the light um the nystagmus is shaking off the eyes I can't focus properly so sometimes when there's one step I might think there's two because to me it's shaking glaucoma is high pressure in the eye um not a lot of young people get the glaucoma is mostly elderly people. Um, so they're the four eye conditions I have. Is it very unusual to have all four combined? Either? Um, they're kind of interlinked. Okay. okay. Yeah. Oh, so what percentage vision would you have? I have 5%. I'm 5%. told that I'm legally blind. So um, So how in terms of getting around? Yeah, so I'd use the cane. I'm quite familiar with y'all. Like, um, so if I ever did forget my cane, like... It's not. Would you I have suppose, a guide dog or? No, I don't have a guide dog. No. Okay. But like, there are time might come where I might need one. Mm-hmm. So, so I suppose fi- that's a kind of scary day. And I suppose there is some days there when the light is so bad for hurting my eyes. My eyes can go bloodshot that I just have to stay housebound because the the eyes are hurting me too much. And I suppose that was one of my biggest fears going to Antarctica because out in Antarctica in January, it's twenty four hours of light. So you have the bright sky 
with the sun in it shining against the white snow and that is just massive glare like so for me when I arrived in Antarctica on the Friday and we did the marathon on started the marathons on the Monday um adjusting while we were there like on the Friday I just couldn't stay out so Did you I'd, wear glasses at all? So you had on the glasses and I had on a peak cap, but that still wasn't helping me. So uh, I was really fearful about that. So as the run coach guide runner, John, said, he said, look, Sinead, if all comes to all, what we'll do is we'll just put a complete blindfold over you and then it'll be total blackness, like as in like totally blind to help you deal with the light like so I've encountered experiences in trying to go out at night time and people think my eyes are diet pupils are dilated and they tell me I can't go into a pub or a nightclub because I'm drunk even though I'm sober like and so, you'd have a cane like or two would you as well like yeah that. so oh. um tell me, is was there something you were born with or did it born do? genetic okay. yeah. did you have siblings yeah I have a sibling yeah she's visually impaired as well, as well. okay uh, is the world a scary place in that sense because it's well, blurry? I think, we, it's I think we live in a world where visually impaired people can become very isolated mm. because we live in a world where it's all focused on um, on visualization. Like, mm. uh, like you see there now, everybody's so focused on Instagram. It's all visual, mm. visual, visual. Um, and I suppose that's where people with visual impairment can become isolated. A lot of people um, try and um, communicate with people through eye contact. Again, that's another form of how people can become isolated. Um, Is there ways you you discovered to kind of overcome that? Well, I think that like even if I want to engage in a conversation with people in a group, have noticed it with myself and other visually impaired people that sometimes that they come like because you can't read the body language you don't know when to interject to say your point mm. you see so um there's that so can i take you back like i, I guess i can only imagine how scary the world must be when it's you know it's scary enough as it is you know mm. when, you're, when you're dealing with visually what you see around you but when it's blurry and you can't see it properly as a child especially when you're dealing with bullying and, and the kind of bullying you talked to me there earlier mm. about where they were looking to draw blood that must force you to go into yourself so much in terms of hiding away from the world. Did you find that, like, as a kid growing up and as a teenager especially, that you felt you were in the corner and the rest of the world was outside somewhere else? Um, Kind of, yeah. Like, I, I, I wouldn't have been the most popular girl in school. Um, I suppose, I suppose with me, with my vision impairment, a lot of people would have said, oh, she's accident prone. That's why she has the bruises. Um, a lot now, nowadays with the cyber bullying, it can be very closed, like as in um, what's going on in the head as opposed to physical bruises on your body. Um, I did my PhD on a teacher's duty of care inside and outside of school regarding bullying. So I like I was looking at the areas of em- empathy, school curriculum, law and policy. Um, Were you let down by teachers in school by what happened? I think so. I think I was let down by students and the school. So do you think that you developed an inner strength over the years 
that um, for, yeah, because of what you went through. Lot, I think it has taken a lot of um, time to get to the where I am. Like, I think that the a lot of us go through adversity and it's how you react to it. Like every single person is hit by adversity of some form, but it's how you react to it. And I suppose back then I used what I thought were positive coping mechanisms rather than negative. Like I thought they were positive, but actually looking back, they were negative. What were they like? Um, I suppose just controlling my food and um, just having issues around food and... um, all that kind of area, but... But do you find now that strength and that attitude, like you said, it's not something that suddenly just clicked a switch when you were 17, but once you started making a conscious decision in your life to be proactive about something, that one leads to, one thing leads to another, there's a knock-on effect. Like when I was growing up, like nobody in my family is from the legal profession. I was told by a careers advisor teacher not to do law. When I was in UCC, I found it really hard. In second year, I decided to give up law. My parents said, oh, look, we'll go to London um, to see, like maybe go shopping first. I thought to myself, okay, well, if this is a reward for saying I'm giving up, then I should have said I was giving up much sooner. But we ended up going, meeting a judge who was totally blind and that changed my mind and I came back to Ireland full of confidence and he he was my role model. So I think a lot of us in life need to think about who, who our role models are. I suppose if anything to take maybe from this is one is don't give up hope, to have a support network around you to help you mm-hmm. uh, and to reach out for help when, where it's needed. Like I couldn't choose how I was born, but I can choose how I live my life and everybody has those kind of choices and I suppose sometimes we're dealt cards in our life where say the economic crash, none of us had control over that, but we had the control over how we reacted to it and when I talk about sportsmanship there, if somebody beats you and you have worked hard and you see they have worked hard, have respect for that person and realise, okay, they have put in hard work just like you and that you have to go back to the drawing board, be adaptable, come up with different other strategies and that can be applied to other areas of your life. If you apply for a job today and it doesn't work out, then don't sit there and keep dwelling on it. Maybe do that for a day or two and etc. But by the third day, Who's going, how are you going to get the job unless you get up and start applying again? And another thing is you have to fight for it, like in achieving your goals. You can't just say, okay, I want to do a race next week. And then you ask the person, well, what have you actually done about it? What steps have you put in place? How have you prepared? Have you got the passion for it? Have you got the patience for it? Like, because again, you have to be patient. Like, World Marathon Challenge happened for me, but it didn't happen until a year later. Mm. So, like, I started planning that in 2016. didn't happen until 2017. So you have to be passionate about it and um, realise that the reason why you're doing it, because if you don't know the reason why you're doing it when you're positive, you definitely won't know it when you're negative and then you won't know why to get back up. Perseverance and believing in yourself. Sinead Kenny, it's been an absolute pleasure to talk to you. Uh, I'm in awe of what you've achieved and I can't wait to see what you're going to achieve in the next 20 years, judging what you've done so far. So 
And if anybody would like to go out and attempt my treadmill record, we didn't get onto my treadmill record. Yeah. But if you want to attempt that, you can. <laughs> what for? Just for, how long was it again? So what? that was furthest distance for any female on a treadmill in twelve hours. The Guinness record. The record was held by an Australian girl. That was one hundred and twenty-eight point six two kilometers, and I did one hundred and thirty point five zero in twelve hours. Well done! Congratulations on everything you've achieved and what you're going to achieve. Um, in the future. Thank you, and thanks for having me on the podcast. Don't forget to subscribe to the Commit Podcast on Apple, Spotify, and Google Podcasts. And if you want to harness your strengths, develop a growth mindset, become more resilient, and succeed, go to mcnoltyperformance.com for more insights and information.